You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Wise, and I'm a resident from Detroit, Michigan. Hey, everybody. I'm Kim Tucker from Tucson, Arizona. And I'm Peter Gold in Denver, Colorado at Panorama Orthopedics. We are very excited to be joined by Dr. Matthew Abdel. Dr. Abdel graduated from University of Minnesota at Twin Cities for his undergraduate studies before going to University of Wisconsin for medical school. He then went to the Mayo Clinic for his residency training, followed by a fellowship at Hospital for Special Surgery, and he is now back on staff at the Mayo Clinic. He is an expert in parapsychic joint infections, and we'll be talking about two of his articles on this episode's podcast. Dr. Abdel, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin, Peter, and Kim. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. And then, Peter, do you want to kind of talk about our first article here? Yeah, thanks, Matt, for joining us. You had two really good articles this month in JOA, so we wanted to kind of go over them with you and talk with you and see where a conversation takes us. First article is called OASIS, Orthopedic Surgery and Anesthesiology Surgical Improvement Strategy Project, Phase 3 Outcomes. The OASIS project was started in 2017, and its aim was to improve quality and efficiency of hip and knee arthroplasties. And the Phase 3 part of the project had specific goals, including increasing same-day discharge of primary total joint arthroplasty, to 20%, maintaining or improving 30-day readmission rates and achieving cost saving and revenue increases. So this project was done out of the Mayo Clinic. There was 2,966 primary total joints from 2021 to 2022 that were included in phase three. And it looked at three different changes. One in the preoperative area where they included an exclusion checklist, did pre-op PT, had improvement in pre-op education, improved order sets, pre-op fluid management, as well as peripheral nerve block alignment with anesthesia. Then intraoperatively, they added the PACU bypass and postoperatively worked on improving efficiencies in post-op medication orders, lower extremity PT equipment on all hospital floors, and post-op day one patient phone calls, as well as addressing any nursing concerns about improving discharge communications on the floor. The results from phase three is that their same-day discharge increased from 4% that baseline to 37%. The length of stay decreased from 1.5 to 0.9 days, and 30-day readmission decreased from 1.3 to 1.2%, with an overall cost savings at about $5 million. So, Matt, this is such a great project, and obviously something you guys have been working on for quite some time. I think there's a lot that we can kind of pick apart and dive into so that our listeners can figure out ways that they may be able to improve their processes. Could you just give us a little bit of a background on what phase one and phase two of this project was and how that kind of led up to a successful phase three of the study? Yeah, Peter, this is an area I've had a big passion in. Really how Oasis One started was my disenfranchisement with trying to do a high volume of both primary revisions and academic medical center. And instead of planning, I opted to basically get this team together, which included myself and anesthesiologists as a core group. And then we layered on nursing leadership, radiology leadership, pharmacy leadership, environmental services leadership, physical therapy, OT. And I learned a lot on this. We got our systems engineer partners involved and they taught me a lot about lean methodologies, waste walks, And we started this project really in late 2015, 2016. We walked what a patient would experience at the Mayo Clinic for hip and knee replacement. And as we walked that process, we found that on a cold January day in Rochester, Minnesota, 
the doors won't even open for hip and knee replacement. And so we recognized that there was a massive amount of work that needed to be done at the Mayo Clinic to refine our hip and knee arthroplasties. So Oasis One focused on lead methodologies, cutting out the waste, becoming efficient, standardizing, optimizing, and innovating the hip and knee practice. And we took a leg to stay from five days in 2015, 2016, down to about two. Oasis 2.0 tethered on revisions, hip preservation, and oncology reconstructions. And we still drove down length to stay, increased volume. And then phase three was peri-pandemic. We were all going through it, right? Where the hospital said, you can't operate. If you do operate, the patients have to get out the same day. I'm at this behemoth medical institution and all the beds were going to other things. And I said, all right, we're going to get this done. And you saw, we basically took it from four to 40% in a couple of months time to an outpatient same day discharge. Matt, can I ask a question about this? So if you're at a hospital that doesn't do this and you guys started this at the beginning, so who do you approach first? Do you get your team together and then go to admin or like how, what's your recipe for getting this started, I guess? Yeah, it's a really good question. I learned a lot. I'll tell you, I didn't have a recipe, but now I do feel pretty good about the recipe. I think it's actually pairing up with an anesthesiologist and having a pairing. And I'll just tell you, my co-pilot on this was Hugh Smith. His father used to be the CEO of Mayo Clinic. He's an anesthesiologist. He's a world-class. And when you have the two groups united, a surgical lead and an anesthesia lead, everybody else is willing to get on board. So what we did is we formed that as the pair. Then we created an anesthesia and orthopedic surgery lead that ran our pre-op group, intraoperative group, and post-op group. So we had four surgeons, four anesthesiologists. We led it. And then we got the head nurse on board. And then we got the head radiologist on board and the head pharmacist. And then we went to administration and said, this is the real deal. We got a multidisciplinary team. We're going to revolutionize episode of care from start to end, every aspect of it, get on board. And they were on board with it. Can you tell me a little bit more about the radiologist involvement? I haven't really used that before. Yeah, for us, it was intraoperative imaging. So when we did that waste walk, which if you haven't done a waste walk, I encourage you to at your medical center. We literally walked a whole day's worth of patients and said, what's the radiologic step? opening the doors, intraoperative radiographs, pack use full, the floor doesn't have beds. And we found all this waste in the system. And radiology, one of them was at the time, we had no DR, digital radiography. We were getting the films, we'd wait for them, it'd be 15 minutes, it was torture, I get a film on every hip. And you know, small changes like getting two DR machines and x-rays that took 30 seconds, say 15 minutes per case, survey bays were full. So all those small things that I said were low-hanging fruit, we cut out and cleaned up in the process. Nice. Yeah, and just one, one more question just about the process. See, something I'm super interested in is high-performance teams, also user experiences from the patient. Could you speak kind of maybe to both of those, like what you learned professionally or more as a developmental-wise, you learned about high-performance teams like you put together here, and also on the patient side of you know really kind of getting down and deep on what is it actually like to be a patient like that, that you were kind of shocked about even this far into your career? Yeah, you, you highlighted two important areas, the team. And I broke it up into the three Ps. The three Ps. I call it patient satisfaction, provider satisfaction, and processes. So I had a Venn diagram I started every one of our leadership meetings with, which we met every week for these projects. So for since 2016, we meet every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. with all the stakeholders in the room. 
And if it doesn't improve patient care, provider satisfaction, and process improvement, where those three Venn diagrams meet, then we didn't move forward with it. So that was my guiding principle on performing, um, putting together a team and performing at a high level. Because you could put together an A-plus team, but that A-plus team needs to perform at a high level consistently and over time. That's number one. Now, in regards to the patient, the patient's at the center of this, and they're at the core. So we also engage uh, an unbelievable engineering team we have at Mayo that actually walks the patient journey with them, blinded from the healthcare team. It comes back, I'll give you an example of mine. They walked 30 of my patients and came back to me and said, Dr. Bell, okay, here's what you do really well in general and your team and your ecosystem around you. But here's what you do really poorly. Patients feel X, they feel Y, they felt this. It has not, it's not related to what the interaction was with you, but the process before and after you. So we did that for five hip and knee surgeons, myself being one of them, took the best practices and mapped out a one through 15 episode of care that our patients at Mayo experienced. And we said, okay, within these 15 buckets, we got to work on intake. And at the very end, we got to work on a 90-day follow-up. And we fixed things within those 15 different episodes of care to improve the patient journey. That's awesome. It's really great. And so kind of getting into the weeds of, of what you guys did in this phase. So three parts, you know, pre-op, intra-op, slash the pack you kind of bypass, as well as the post-op changes. And you guys kind of highlighted in the study about 20 key wins within the article. What changes or shifts did you see that you feel like made the biggest difference or was the biggest kind of game changer for same-day discharge that you think maybe some other people might be able to, to work on implementing into their practice? Patient expectation. So that's, that's the win. I mean, the easiest thing I did is I basically just went into each room and said, you're going to be going home the same day. You will be going home. No, I can't. X, Y, and Z. Nope, you're going home. So that was my baseline. So my baseline shifted. So the surgeon needs to shift. That's only the small part of it. Every single person around me needs to shift. So from the first person that's ballet, if that person says, no, no, most people stay overnight, you've lost. So everybody in the episode of care, everybody, radiology, tech, pharmacy, ballet, you know, check-in, nurse, PA, have that mentality. So that was number one. It's setting the expectation up. Number two, it's more work to do an outpatient same-day discharge. So we shifted that work to the clinic setting. We made a new FAQ. We got the prescriptions up front. We spent more time talking to them. I called them on the way home. Like today, I called them on the way home, make sure they're doing well. My team will call them tomorrow. We actually have more touch points built in. That's number two. And number three, I always say this, you have to, the surgeon has to deliver a reproducible and reliable patient to the PACU every time. And that's a summation of all of the advances in the surgical medical care of hip and knee arthroplasty patients on avoiding hypotension, fluid resuscitation, minimal blood loss, surgical expertise on a set time, just making sure that that whole process is smooth. And so if I were to summarize the three big ones, those would be it. Awesome. I just had a quick question. It's kind of changing gears back to what we were talking about before, but you had mentioned that one of the biggest initial steps was getting anesthesia on board and having someone who will be a champion with you from the anesthesia department. Were there any barriers there basically describing to anesthesia why this is important, why we should be doing this? You know, Kevin, I, I would say we're very fortunate in this area. It's quite the opposite. We're very close friends at Mayo with our anesthesiologists. And so when I initially pitched this, there was huge buy-in by them. And I think there was huge buy-in, one, because we have a good friendly relationship with our anesthesia colleagues. But two, 
it was wins for surgery, but it was also wins for anesthesia and how we paired an anesthesiologist covering two rooms, how we innovated with Mepivacan RCT we published, the three-arm periarticular injection studies we published, the use of IV epinephrine, IV Tylenol. So we paired with them. And one thing I should highlight that probably doesn't come out in this paper is I also highlighted the ability for academic publications and collaboration. On the multiple RCTs we've done, just the Waitsons paper itself describing the methodology and having a hook for surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses to wanting to be involved in the project. In terms of working with uh, with anesthesia, I mean, two of the biggest things you guys did were it's in terms of peripheral nerve blocks and then and fluid management. Can you kind of describe some of the changes you made there? I think those could be really quick fixes or things that, that other uh, surgeons could do you know, back, back at home. Yeah, you said it nicely. So there are some things I call low-hanging fruit. We gave a green light to. These were, there's no discussion. We need to fix it, period. Then there were some yellow lights where we knew there was going to be a little bit of work. And then there were some red lights where I was like, ooh, this one's going to be a big lift. We might not get it done this project. So a couple of the green lights, low-hanging fruit were this whole concept of MPO, no water, for your last case of the day might be 20 hours is insane. So I encourage them to drink two bottles of water en route to the hospital. I say, once you get to the hospital, no more clear liquids. And I just made it easy. I just said water. People confuse black coffee and cream, whatever. I just said two bottles of water on the way to the hospital, period. The recommendations by our anesthesia colleagues is two hours. No matter what, by the time a patient gets in and they get first incision, first case, it's going to be two hours. It works out perfect. So that kept a hypotension to minimum. Number two with fluids, we give them, surgery goes so quick now. So people get the anesthetics and they don't get fluid resuscitation. So I give them a bolus of one liter if their heart can tolerate it. So that's on fluid management. That's number one, kind of low-hanging fruit. Periarticular injections, anesthesia care. This is important. The biggest win I've seen in my entire career now over a decade is moving away from femsiotics, for instance, on knees and psoas blocks on hips and going to motor sparing blockades, number one, which maintains the muscle tone and has great pain control. And number two for us, mepivacaine spinals, short acting, no nausea, no vomiting, or I should say minimal nausea, vomiting, and a variety of other side effects. So that's kind of our comprehensive protocol right now that's been very successful for same day outpatient discharge. Matt, do you want to talk about anything else specific to your program? No, you all hit highlights. I mean, I, I wanted so. to hopefully be helpful for other people. I mean, I was banging my head against the wall, yeah. you know, at a major medical institution. Can I ask a question about it? I know you have a lot of papers in like Journal of Arthroplasty and these publications, but do you have any forms that you all used for your hospital that you could share at some point with your colleagues or friends or something like that? Just because I'm just trying to figure out how to consolidate all of this information because I think it would be really helpful to have that and say, look, here's what worked at this center. I know we may not have all these resources, but if we could get some of the, as you put it, low-hanging fruit, I think that'd be super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I got them all and I got them in a nice PDF. Some of it's in like an appendix one of Oasis one paper, okay. but I've got all those nicely collated in a PDF that I frequently give when I give grand rounds on the topic. If we were like a fancy high profile podcast, maybe, maybe we'd have show notes or something at the end. <laughs> <laughs> However, you can email them to all of us. No. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> moving to the second one, it's a, a great, you know, again, first study was, was great. I think it's going to be really impactful for, for everybody's uh, other practice. So appreciate all the, the hard work you guys have been doing, doing with that. The second study is short course of oral antibiotic treatment after two-stage exchange arthroplasty appears to decrease early reinfection. Uh, again, out of the Mayo Clinic, a retrospective review of 444 patients undergoing two-stage exchange for PJI mm-hmm. from 2010 to 2018. Uh, they excluded patients who had failed prior to two stages, had positive cultures of reimplantation, or prolonged post-op antibiotic or lifelong suppression. They split the cohort up into three groups, patients who had no antibiotics after reimplantation, patients with equal to or less than two weeks of post-op antibiotics after reimplantation, or more than two weeks of antibiotics, with the most common antibiotics being cephalexin, cefadroxyl, and doxycycline. And the main metric was looking at reinfection at one year. So out of the 444 patients, 34 had recurrent PJIs, so that was a 91.4% survivorship overall with reduced infections at one year. In the results, there was 34 recurrent PJIs at one year. When they looked at the patients who were on antibiotics after there was a 91.4% survivorship for reinfection at, at one year, especially in the equal to or less than two weeks antibiotic group compared to no antibiotics. But when they looked at the more than two weeks of antibiotics, it did not show any significant reduction in overall infection. So in total, they concluded that using antibiotics after reimplantation from a two-stage versus not using antibiotics did have a significant reduction in overall reinfection at, at one year, and questionable if more than two weeks of antibiotics did reduce the overall infection. Uh, so again, this is a great study, I think one that could be useful for all of our listeners. We know that Yang et al. did a RCT looking at three months of post-op antibiotics after reimplantation. What about that study left you guys asking more questions and wanting to look at different antibiotic durations? Yeah, it was really that study was part of it. I had always been intrigued at this concept of PO antibiotics and really a balance. I think going too long is dangerous and I think going too short is dangerous. We're talking about in two-stage exchange. And my supposition or belief was that these people got an infection because they're a bad host on the front end. And at that period of time in which we do surgery, we know the best thing we've ever done is give perioperative antibiotics and routine hip and knee. And so I thought to myself, they're bad hosts. They didn't do great. I'm now going to take everything out, put in a spacer, come back in. These are high-risk periods of time for bacterial loads and contamination. And so I had always felt, just felt, that two weeks was about the right number. We take path, we take cultures. You mitigate that super high risk period of time and usually hosts that aren't great. And then that paper came out suggesting that three months, but I recognized that patients didn't have tolerance for three months, that I was concerned about developing resistance or kicking the can down farther down the road, antibiotic stewardship. And so what we did is we retrospectively looked at our experience of, you know, 450-ish, two-stage exchanges, equal distribution of hip and knee, and I broke it down into really short course. I got a couple of days because they were in the hospital and they went home. So we just called that less than two weeks. That two-week mark, which I thought was the critical one that I think a lot of us use critically but don't talk about. You reimplant someone, you do an aseptic revision, get cultures, you give antibiotics for 7, 10, or 14 days. Or the groups that got it extended greater than two weeks out to about two months in our series. And you saw the data. Basically, it appears that there is a benefit to a short course. And that's the key in the title. We're not promoting three months, six months, lifelong suppression. 
but a short course, a few weeks in that very high risk period of time in which you just have re-implanted a high risk hip or knee with fluted taper stems, highly porous cups, cemented stems in, in the knee and mitigate that risk. And I think that's kind of the key and why I got that short course word as the first two words of the title of this paper. I think that was really great. And I like, appreciate your comment that I think a lot of us were actually doing this without substantial data to support mm -hmm. it. I know I have done that too. Could you go over which antibiotics you're using regularly and the dosages? Yeah. So right now, say I'm going to reimplant someone tomorrow and assume they have no allergy and it's a run-in-the-mill bug. Typically what I'll do is cefadroxyl, DID, and I'll just do 14 days. And the reason is I take pathology and I usually will take five cultures and I wait, we hold our cultures for 14 days. So I like to see the cultures. It gives me two things. Number one, decrease that bacterial load right at that time I'm reimplanting someone. But two, it gets me out to 14 days in case, God forbid, one, two, three cultures pop up positive. I have an opportunity to talk to infectious disease doctors, get them back on an IV pick and treat them so they're not uncovered. So that's my typical workflow. I will tell your infectious disease doctors recommend doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID. So I'll often use that as well, but my preference is cefadroxyl. I might also give credit to Michael Managini, who's published extensively on this topic on short course of PO antibiotics and high-risk primaries. And so all at the same time, there was a lot of emerging data on high-risk primaries, two-stage exchange, three months, is it seven days, 10 days, two weeks, three months? And all of that kind of conglomerated together. And I said, let's look at our experience. This is what we came out with. You know, and this obviously might change from patient to patient, but just in general, what are you doing for that patient? You reimplant them at two weeks. You, you check the SRCRP, it came down. You aspirated, it was negative. You reimplant them at two weeks. They're doing their two-week antibiotic course now and cultures come back positive. Are you treating, just trying to treat them IV antibiotics and then suppression or you're typically going back in for another washout what's your your kind of take on that these days yeah there's a lot of flavors to it i say you call the patient they're doing great wounds healed and they say i am sorry you know three of the five grew x what we'll traditionally do is treat them with IV antibiotics for another period of time and then convert them to po suppression so they're going to be on po suppression and our data our aucs would indicate probably two years is the right number but lifelong suppression. If they're not doing well, then I would start thinking about being a little more aggressive. If they're struggling, it's draining that bit. If it's a hip, which is mostly cementless, I may consider going in there and pulling everything out, putting another spacer or a resection arthroplasty. If it's a knee, my preference is cement the femoral tibial stems with cones. That thing's not coming out on you know, week two or three. So they're going to get the IV antibiotics and the suppression and potentially potentially a dare if need be. But that's kind of my workflow. Thoughts and prayers on that one, right? Yeah, totally. Especially the bigger <laughs> you <and> go. <laughs> yeah. One thing I saw about this article was that the reinfection for patients was not from the original infecting organism, right? It was from a different organism in the majority mm -hmm. of the cases. I think this is you know a huge point and a, a problem that we we all deal with time and time again. What are you guys trying to do to address this problem? And what do you think it's from? Do you think it's polymicrobial from the start and we're only catching one bug on culture? Do you think it's one bug and when we treat that one, another one is kind of gets the opportunistic opportunity to, to take over and, and now it's the infecting organism? What do you think is going on here? I think it's the latter and really it's a host. So I think what's underestimated in this entire process is the host. 
and the host's ability to fight this. And so my belief is that these patients are at risk, that you might have fought bug one with IV antibiotics and the treatment and all this process. But in the process, we've been in there for two and a half hours taking things out. We're coming back in for two and a half hours to put things in. They got infected from the first surgery, which would might have been 35 minutes. So it makes us think that all of a sudden another bug might not be at risk in this compromised host. So I think that's a big part of it. Underneath that, I do have concerns that long-term suppression will breed A, resistance, and B, other organisms' ability to flourish. And that, again, goes back to the premise of this paper, a short course. Just get that high risk period of time, not life longer, three months or six months. You know, looking at this paper, you also mentioned your single stage. Can you talk about who you do a single stage on, patient characteristics, or do you do that very often? Yeah, so I'm biased. I'm a very strong proponent of two-stage exchange arthroplasty in the vast majority of settings. Now, I'll tell you who I do do a one stage on. Number one, by accident. I'm trying to be honest here, right? So I've worked them up. It's an aseptic revision. I do the whole thing. And I take three cultures. It's aseptic revision. It looks aseptic. And all of a sudden, the cultures come back positive. That's a, that's a one stage. But that's why I do an aggressive debridement and cleanse at every aseptic revision because you never know if it's going to pop up. That's number one. Number two, in some cases where it is absolutely catastrophic to do it twice, and for me, I do a lot of tumor reconstruction. We do have a subset of patients that have bony necrosis from the tumor and infection. In some of those cases where there's a short life expectancy and there's a lot going on with malignancy, I'll do it at one stage. In some patients where it's going to be massive, it's going to be like a total femur and a Marlex mesh and a constrained, as opposed to zipping everything open, doing, come back and zipping it open and mobilizing all neurovascular bundles again, I'll do it in a one stage. And so for me, the one stage is actually way more off-label than I think what most people traditionally think about. Most of the time I would do a two-stage, except in very fringe situations, but I actually don't think a patient can tolerate the second one, or we're going to put catastrophic risk to neurovascular bundle. Are you taking and keeping the cultures for 14 days in those aseptic loosening cases as well routinely? Yep. We do 21 days, actually. Okay. We read them out at 14 for everybody. And then we read out 21 if anything goes back positive. So I've kind of set 14 as my number before I call any patient back or change any treatment courses. Can I ask about one more aside associated with an infection? I find these conversations difficult to have because I take these very personally and you all probably do too. How do you discuss this with a patient? Like they come back into your office, like if you don't mind sharing some of the words that you use or the phrases that you use just to like let them know it's not their fault. It's not, you know, those kind of things. Like, how do you do that? Yes. I started Kim by telling them, and it's true. I've seen it a lot. I tell them, listen, this is physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially draining. And it will be. I mean, because they're usually, usually at their wits end with everything. And usually there's a significant other or someone else in the room. And I say to them, I said, and for the caregiver, this reminds me of end of life discussions. We're not talking about end of life, but it's a big tax on the entire family. So I tell them that right off the bat. And then the question is why or how or why me? And I say, to be honest with you, we don't definitively know. But what we do know is the host plays a role. What we do know is the wound plays a role. And what we do know is the surgical technique, surgeon, environment play a role. And so that's how I describe it, because I do think all three of them. 
And it's not to put blame just on the patient or just to put blame on a specific situation in that joint or to blame a hospital or surgeon. And, you know, when they're mine, let's pretend it's one of mine. It's an acute post-op. I say part of it is you, the host. Part of it is the wound that we're dealing with. You had a previous osteomyelitis as a kid. And part of it is instruments, surgery, we're open. Me, I take responsibility. I'm your surgeon. And so I just tell them, I say, let's be fair. And let's call it a third, a third, a third. If they ask me, that's what I tell them. And I think everybody in the room gets it. They're like, okay, yeah, that's right. He's okay. a little bit cause of this. They're a little bit cause of this. And let's go from here. Thanks. That's a really good way to think about it and describe it to them. One last question is specifically about doing the two stages. What do you feel like is some of the most important factors just in terms of doing a good job in the in the two stage, you know, it's obviously chemical, mechanical, debridement. You know, what are some of the things that that you feel like are you know some of the game changers that you do to keep those being as successful as possible? All debridement, all debridement. There's people that change drapes and they change gloves and they scrub in and they scrub out and pour things in the wound. And the more I get into it, the farther I get along the more I recognize that I think I do an A-plus debridement, I take a pause, I'll irrigate actually for a mental break, and then I debride again, and I find a massive amount of other things, and then I'll take another little break with, with irrigates, and I'll come back to it. And I am 100% convinced it's all about radical, aggressive, and repetitive debridement. And so uh, I'm going to triple down on that one. Are you, you know, debriding tissue, you know, with the bovi? Is it cobs and curettes? I mean, what what are you specifically doing uh, with the mechanical debridement, and how do you know that you're quote unquote done? I, I do all. So when I get bored with one set of uh, instruments, I go to the next set. <laughs> the next set. So I think probably like all of us, we like all of our toys. So I start typically with cautery, just because usually the tissue is friable and bloody. So I'll usually start with the hot cautery. I'll use a little bit of knife. I use knife and do pickups for each of the cultures. So I'll do a lot of it initially on that portion, and I'll do with cautery. And then after I do that, I'll always ream, do bony cuts to clean it up, whether it's you know acetabulum, femoral, femur, tibia on the knee, patella. So taking everything out and doing it with mechanical. And then I'll usually end with old school with curettes and Charlie curettes, the original ones that we used to ream cups with. So I'll use those on acetabular femoral and I'll use them on the femur and tibia. And so they get kind of a flavor of saw cuts, bovi, knife, curettes. And I know I'm done when the entire wound is worrisome because there's so much bleeding. That's how I know I'm done, where I'm like, God, there's a lot of bleeding. Can we better just take a look, make sure everything looks okay? When I see everything bleeding, all the soft tissue, all the bony surfaces, I know I've done the appropriate debridement that when the ID antibiotics come through the pick line, it's going to get everywhere. If I don't see bleeding everywhere, I don't leave. Kind of an aside question, just looking forward to the future treatment of these patients. We've talked about IV antibiotics, oral antibiotics, having an adequate debridement. What do you think is the next big step that, that pushes us forward in terms of maybe it's a new technology, maybe it's a new way to deliver these antibiotics, maybe it is a new surface on these actual implants that is a little more antibiotic resistant. Is there anything that you see here in the next five, 10 years we'll be seeing in our careers that's going to be the next big jump in, in preventing or maybe treating these PJIs? Yeah, I think, you know, from the treatment perspective, I do think age therapy have a role and an ever-increasing role. I think industry is more involved in it. We're doing a large randomized clinical trial on it right now. 
and basically utilizing the body's ability through viruses to target specific bugs, I think will be a biologic treatment that's non-antibiotic related to supplement what we're doing. I don't think it's going to replace anything, but I think it's going to take our 90% success at one year to 95 and take our 80% success at 15 years to 90%. So I think that's, and that's probably real within five to 10 years. On the preventative side, we're getting really good. I mean, it is really hard as a nation to change a 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 0.8% primary PJI rate much lower. I actually do believe that the push to outpatient same-day surgery and ASCs, by the nature of being a little quicker, a little smoother, the wounds open a little less long, is probably going to be the best thing that we see in that. I don't ever think we're going to drive it to zero because, again, there's a host. And each one of us are different. And each one of us has different defenses. So I think that one's going to be tough. All right. Anybody else have any questions or Dr. Abdel, anything you want to add about either of those general topics? No, I congratulate you three. This is a wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity. It's actually very stimulating to be able to spend time with three colleagues and discuss papers in a, in a relaxed, friendly atmosphere. And, you know, this is how my mind gets stimulated is hearing what other people are thinking and what other people are doing. So thank you three for one, doing this and educating others and two for the stimulation enlightenment. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here with us. Well, uh, Dr. Abdel, thank you for joining us on this episode of Journal Arthroplasties, The Cut. If any of our listeners here have any topic that they would like to hear discussed or comments, questions, please feel free to email us at jwaythecut at gmail.com. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.